Dr. Shelley Epstein was raised in the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area. She got her veterinary degree from the University of Pennsylvania in 1985 and went into small animal practice. About 10 years later, her interest in holistic medicine began, and she attended a seminar taught in part by Dr. Alan Schoen, which piqued her interest. She was trained in homeopathy by Dr. Richard Pitcairn through the Academy of Veterinary Homeopathy. She also has training in chiropractic. After having success treating her patients with homeopathy, she was able to get a case report published in the Journal of the American Animal Hospital Association, in part because she partnered with an academic veterinarian and was able to secure funding through the American Holistic Veterinary Medical Association. She has served as president of the Academy of Veterinary Homeopathy and is the current editor-in-chief of the Journal of the American Holistic Veterinary Medical Association. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Shelley Epstein as we discuss her education, her start in holistic medicine, her love for writing, and her perspective as editor-in-chief of the AHVMA Journal. Dr. Epstein, thanks for taking the time today. You're welcome, Neil. So where'd you grow up? Oh, I was born in Philly, scooped back to Havertown, Pennsylvania, within a few days. And I grew up in Havertown, right outside of Philly. Is it suburban, rural? What what sort of? Uh, suburban. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, 10 minutes from Philly. Oh, wow. Um, when did the idea of becoming a veterinarian come into play for you? Um, I think when I was transported from Philly to my my home, <laughs> it's as long back, far back as I could remember. <laughs> wow! Um, so, where did you go for undergrad then? Undergrad, I went to Muhlenberg College in Allentown. It was it was a very strong uh, pre med school, and every year they got one or two, maybe three pre vets in. Because uh, there weren't many pre-vets. And uh, I got in my year. Nice. My graduation year. Yeah. Oh, good. Um, how big was your class at Penn then? Our vet class was, I think, 108. It's gone way up now, but I think the limitation was 108 or 105, something like that at the time. How many women were in your class? We were just under, we were something like 49% women, 51% men, or maybe 49.9% women, 50 point, whatever, you know, it was just, um, just on the cusp. And then next year tipped it over to women. Did you enjoy vet school? Uh, there were parts I enjoyed, you know, like, uh, the, the rotations were good that I did enjoy that. The academics were just so intense. Uh, I can't say I enjoyed the first few years. I liked when we started to get into clinical applications and things, but all of all of the basic stuff, um, it was just it, too much. A lot of stress. Yeah. A lot of stress. And, yeah. you know, you take pages and pages of notes and try to make sense of them. And, of course, now with a holistic perspective, I realize that my brain was there many years ago, you know, like in microbiology, the way it was taught in vet school was they would name an organism, a bacterium, and then they would just tell you all the diseases that it caused. And, and you know, there was no reference point. You just had to memorize all of that. And you couldn't apply that kind of memorization clinically. Um, so, that's why I enjoyed when we finally got into the clinics and, and also the more clinical 
lectures uh, during the more academic years. Oh, yeah. Um, did you have an idea what sort of medicine you wanted to practice when you got out of school? Oh, yeah. I knew I was going to be a small animal in, in private practice. Did you, enjoy your, did you enjoy your large animal rotations, though? I, um, I, we had New Bolton Center is, was, and still is the large animal half of Penn. And I called it serving my time at New Bolton Center. Ah, sure. <laughs> I actually had a horse, um, in vet school, but I didn't consider myself a horse person and I didn't feel comfortable around large animals. Did you get any exposure to holistic medicine in school? I don't believe I did. I, you know, I was trying to think if there was anything, but no, I don't, I don't think I had any exposure in vet school. So what yeah. sort of uh, practice did you join when you got out then? I joined a small animal practice and I was toe the line conventional. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was interesting because one of the things we did was um, we gave talks to the public. Um, where, you know, one of us would give a lecture. And I think one time we decided, let's invite all the groomers in the area. And I don't even remember what the topic was. But at the end, one of the groomers raised her hand and said something about, what do you think about feeding raw diets? I've fed this to my dogs for years, and they've done really well. And you know, it was interesting. I did not dismiss her. I, I thought I need to file this information away and, and come back to it. And it never left me. And of course, here I am now a big advocate of raw diets. But uh, and she became a really good holistic client, too, when I, when I turned holistic 10 years into practice. <laughs> wow. I mean, that, that was kind of a groundbreaking question for the time frame, I imagine that it, came, that it would have been. Yeah, yeah, that would have been so I graduated in 1985 and I don't it was somewhere within the first 10 years of my practice but I, you know I can't really pinpoint the exact time. Yeah. But yeah, you know you get out of vet school and you have a limited knowledge base, um, lots of facts, minimal experience um, when you know the buck stops with you. I remember thinking, you know, at least in vet school, you had an intern and at least one resident and a clinician above you. So you didn't have to make the final determination about what was going on. And then you get into private practice and all of a sudden the buck stops with you. Um, and, you know, you had all these challenges and I would just think about what were the facts that I learned about this? And it was purely conventional in dealing with everything. Um, and then my turning point came nine years out um, when a family member was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And, um, you know, we all sort of took different research routes on, is there anything we could do? And an interesting thing happened <laughs> uh, at that point. Um, so that, you know, I'm trying to remember that diagnosis was kind of the late summer, early fall of 1994, I think. And um, so just before that, you know, as I said, we, we had these lectures and we had a person reach out to us and say, I am an educator for a homeopath, an MD homeopath in Wilmington, Delaware, which is where I practiced. And I'd like to give one of the talks to the public. And I, I said to her, well, I don't know if that's really appropriate for that, but maybe come talk to our staff and do a staff meeting. So she came 
And she, you know, gave some interesting information and we started asking a lot of questions. It was a really good lecture. And I remember walking away from that, you know, at that point in my practice, I thought I could diagnose or treat anything. And if I couldn't, I just turfed it over to a specialist. And, you know, and if they couldn't help it, it wasn't helpable. (laughs) And so I remember her lecturing and then walking away and seeing things in practice and thinking, huh, I wonder how the homeopaths treat this. And, you know, realizing that I did have a lot of limitations based on what I just learned in vet school. And then um, fast forward, you know, we had the illness in the family and I started to look into more things and I started to see, oh my God, people actually can survive terminal cancer. And, you know, what's going on and what methods are they using? And, you know, unfortunately, it didn't work for the family member. I was not in charge of of their health um, and the medical decisions. Um, I don't know if, if there's anything I really could have done realistically at that point. But I learned so much, you know, it opened so many doors. And then in the spring of 95, I believe it was, um, Divakar Khalsa and Alan Schoen gave a two-day seminar in Philadelphia. Um, I think it was like at an airport hotel or something. I can't remember. And I signed up for it. And, you know, obviously it was on all holistic modalities. And I was on the fence up until the last minute and I thought I'm going to be like one of five people in the room. I don't really know if I am oriented this way. And I ended up going and it was standing room only. There were, I think a hundred people there. (laughs) Wow. And at the end of the two days, they talked about a, a lot of Chinese medicine, homeopathy, herbs. I can't even remember everything they talked about. And I remember going up to Alan Schoen. Well, first of all, at the end of, of the lecture, somebody raised their hand and said, is there anything you can't treat? And I think one of them was lymphoma and one of them was degenerative myelopathy. And I thought, fair enough, but you know, the, there is so much we can do now for those. Um, and I went up to Alan Schoen at the end and I said, I'm going to sign up to learn acupuncture. But what it happened was I'm very much a type A. And when I make this, get this idea in my head, I have to pursue it. And I decided I, I want to do something. And Richard Pitcairn's professional course in homeopathy, veterinary homeopathy, came up first on the docket. So I signed mm. up for that. Never took acupuncture courses. I just stuck with homeopathy. And I did study chiropractic as well. Um, and um, so I had those t- two modalities in hand. And we ended up hiring vets who did acupuncture at our practice. And we had a phenomenal chiropractor who I think still goes to the practice, Steve Freeze. Uh, he is a chiropractor who took the course uh, and he's since um, continued with Pedro Rivera studying the neurologic chiropractic stuff. And, you know, with all of these tools and, and we added more, you know, we were the first practice to have laser in Delaware. Um, we did fecal transplants. Um, I would prescribe a few herbs because I, I, you know, knew a little bit about herbs um, and probably the more obvious ones and a lot of nutrition and of course, you know, homeopathy. And we were able to help so many animals um, with what we did, you know, and, and I still, you know, I consider myself integrative because I looked at every case 
from both angles and decided what's the best way to go for this animal and this client who owns the animal. How many docs were in the practice when this, when you guys decided to make this shift? Well, at the time I had a partner um, and she actually studied homeopathy as well, but didn't use it as much. Um, and I think we had maybe one or two other vets. I'm trying to remember because the other vets would shift over the years. And then um, when I retired from the practice a couple years ago, we were, I think, three full-time and a part-time vet. I can't, I, you know, I don't remember exactly, but um, unfortunately the acupuncturist had left, um, but we had others that we, one of them was doing house calls so we could send them to her. Actually two at a point were doing house calls and we could send those cases to them. Um, And then it was sort of me and the practice was starting to kind of move away from that. But Um, The good news is these vets really paid attention to issues like over-vaccination and were very judicious in vaccinating what they, you know, which vaccines they used and how frequently. And we did titers. We did tons and tons of titers in lieu of boosters. Um, They also were very well aware of what makes a good diet (laughs) uh, versus what doesn't make a good diet. Very open if clients wanted to feed raw, you know, so um, it's still a practice that I refer people to. Let's just say that. What a what a blessing that you were an owner and had a partner that had an interest and you guys could kind of set the culture, right? Yeah, it, it was interesting because we, we both kind of said, hey, this is something we should explore. Um, and, you know, we saw how animals were being helped with homeopathy and, you know, what could be done with it. So, and you know, and that, that brings up an interesting thought too is and I know you and I have talked with this and your article is about to come out soon in Javma on the same topic, but you know, what is it that's holding people back from wanting to look into alternative therapies? Yeah. Yeah. Starting with change the name to integrative. (laughs) Right. Can you put your finger on what it was about homeopathy that, that just got your attention? Uh, you know, it's hard to say. Um, I I remember, well, I, first of all, I, I picked it because it was the first thing that came up, the first course that was being offered. Had that been acupuncture, I'd probably be sitting here today talking about acupuncture. You know, had it been chiropractic alone, I would have probably been sitting here talking about chiropractic. Um, but I really loved homeopathy and um, there was just something magical about it. Uh, the way nature has all of these um, plants and minerals and creatures that can appear poisonous, but when used in small quantities can be tremendously healing, um, like unbelievably healing. Um, and, you know, when you're studying this, they they go over cured case upon cured case. And you're sitting there going, Cushing's? You can cure Cushing's with homeopathy? And, you know, you just see all of these different things that, that you can help. And then I got treatment myself and, and experienced a tremendous change in my health that, I mean, to this day, I'm a lot healthier because of homeopathy. That's so, great. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I loved, 
when I did the consults, I loved delving into the small details of the animal and you, you learn so much about the human animal bond and interaction and influences. And it was all so colorful for me that, you know, I really enjoyed homeopathy for those reasons. I have to think that being taught by Dr. Pitcairn was an advantage as well. Oh gosh. Yeah. He's, he's unbelievably brilliant. You know, just a one of these thinkers that there aren't that many of them out there. Um, and you know, he's he was pretty much self-taught. He did not have. Oops, let me. I'm not sure how to silence. Um, <laughs> sorry, that. So we're going to okay. a little bit of that. <laughs> um, anyway, That's okay. He was pretty much self-taught, um, which was absolutely amazing. Um, what he learned, how he was able to parse through all of the original literature and homeopathy, and then convey it to other people, um, and. Yeah, I mean, you have to really respect that. What um, prompted you to tr- to get your case report published in the Journal of AHA? Huh. Um, I I guess I I like many of us have an underlying frustration um, about people not gr- not grasping, not embracing alternative therapies the way I've seen so many of my holistic colleagues do. Um, And part of it was this whole attitude that there's not science behind it and and it doesn't really work. And there are other explanations for why an animal gets better and it can't be your herb or your acupuncture or your homeopathy. Um, so I really set my mind to it. And originally, uh, my, my first case that I had was a very spectacular case. The dog was about five years old. This was for nasal aspergillosis. It was a five-year-old lab. And uh, it was going to be euthanized at Penn because it was just getting worse and worse and not responding to treatment. And we turned that dog around like within weeks with a homeopathic remedy. Um, that case, unfortunately I didn't have follow-up diagnostics. We had, you know, we knew the diagnosis cause it had had CAT scans and rhinoscopy and, um, to get published in a, a peer reviewed journal, you really need the follow-up diagnostics. Um, and you know, I was rejected. Of course I sent it to JAVMA and they're not real big on case reports, um, and they rejected it. And I sent it to, I forget which other journals, maybe Jaha, and they rejected it. And so I found somebody who was an expert on nasal aspergillosis and had published. And I emailed them. And I didn't say what the therapy was, but I said, you know, I, I've experienced with a novel therapy that uh, has cured a case. I don't have follow up diagnostics, though. Do you think it's publishable? And he said, no you need follow-up diagnostics. So this was, he did not know it was homeopathy. It could have been a drug, you know? Um, so I thought, fair enough. So a year or two later, another case came on the phone <laughs> as a phone consult. So I consulted through the university where the dog was being treated uh, and worked with the university, which is how it could be legal. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, first thing I said to the the woman, the owner, was, 
I'll take this case if you're willing to do follow-up diagnostics and I'll get funding for you. And AHVMA at the time, you know, we didn't have the foundation. So uh, they had funding and they approved it. So that dog in two weeks turned around um, and uh, we got the follow-up diagnostics. And I worked with the head of their department on this case. Um, and th there was a resident and the resident didn't, I think the resident didn't want to work on it or needed to focus on their residency requirements <laughs> or something. So the head of the department took over and that was not easy for him either. Um, uh, because, you know, there is a lot of peer pressure, um, in these ivory towers, um, and at one point he said to me, um, I don't think, you know, I want to be a co-author, but I'll let you do it. And I composed an email saying, this is why nobody, um, wants to give credence to holistic therapies because we can't get people to help write good papers. And, you know, you're in a position to help. And I forget how I actually worded it, but he said, okay. <laughs> so, and he was wonderful to work with. Absolutely wonderful. So um, we submitted this one to JAHA and they do publish a lot of case reports and it was accepted. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I really wanted that. And then he really, my co-author really thought the letters to the editor were going to come, but I don't think JAHA has a letters to the editor section or they didn't at the time, uh, but you couldn't dispute this. I did stumble. I was not uh, intentionally looking for this, but I did stumble upon um, one of the skeptics trying to tear apart the paper. And I, I believe I read the column and like, nah, it, it doesn't, his, his, uh, it, it, what he's saying makes no sense. <laughs> he's really scraping the bottom of the barrel to come up with reasons now. <laughs> what, a, what a fortunate set of circumstances. Yeah. You know, yeah. And then of course, with the whole AVMA problem that the homeopaths ran into and, and AHVMA, you know, took full control over, which was great. Um, we were able to say, here's a published paper on it, you know, and there was another one too, that uh, Jaha had published on, um, forgetting what it was, but it was a combination product. So, um, that was a second paper that we had and we just made copies of the abstracts and, and, uh, distributed them. <laughs> Here's evidence for you. <laughs> that's great. Hey, yeah, can, and that, can we, that's what, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, that's what has to be done. And you know that, you know, we need these papers and that's why our journal is so important that we yeah. can, you know, show that to people. Before we talk about that, can we can we talk about your experience writing letters to the editor of the Journal of the AVMA? <laughs> what do you want to know? <laughs> well, just, you know, what prompted you to, to uh, I know you're a prolific letter writer, but, you know, we talked about uh, your issue with having your letters uh, edited, so to speak. Mm -hmm. right. can, you, can you talk about that at all? Well, at the time, um, Dr. Matushik was the editor, and he he was wonderful. I have to say that, and he became a good, a real close mentor for me too uh, when I became editor in chief of uh, Javma. So, um, you know, it's it's a very conventional journal. I understand people's backgrounds, where they're coming from, their perspectives. Um, two people 
composed a, a, just a de novo letter to the editor, um, ripping apart homeopathy in a very um, uh, non sort. I'm looking for a collegiate way. Um, was very. It, 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 I thought it breached AVMA standards of, of collegiality, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. and you know what they have spelled out on that page. Um, so I composed a response and uh, received back. You know, here's the edited version that we're going to publish, and I I was furious because it edited out everything, watered it down, it didn't make any points, and I called them. And they put Dr. Matushik on the phone for me and he was great. And I, I didn't give in. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I finally got it published. It was a little bit more to my liking. And then of course, those two guys came back with their um, response and I composed another letter and I wrote on there, please do not edit this. And they didn't edit it. <laughs> it was great. Um, so, and then, you know, I think that was kind of the end of that discussion, but um, I, I did not like the fact that they thought they could get away with bashing homeopathy and misrepresenting it and, and all that. And it's like, why, why are you picking on the homeopaths? What, what did you think when you woke up that morning? Gee, I, I don't know what else to do. So I think I'll pick on homeopaths. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I wasn't going to let that one go unanswered. And Good. Dr. Matushik is no longer the editor in chief. He's taken another role on the journal. So, um, which is good. I'm, I'm happy for him. Has writing always been an interest of yours? Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I remember, this is kind of funny, but I remember going back to, um, I, you know, I think it was maybe middle school where, which at the time was junior high, um, where they told us you're going to learn how to compose an essay and we're going to start with a paragraph composing a paragraph. And I remember it took me hours to write a paragraph according to the rules. But once I got it, I got it. And then it was like a light went on and I enjoyed writing after that. Um, And, you know, and I came from a family that really valued writing literature, you know, all of that. Um, And yeah. And it comes easily for me to write. Um, and I, you know, I'm doing so much of it now it's coming even more easily. Uh, but yeah, to answer your question. How long have you been involved with the the journal of the AHVMA? You know, I can't remember. So I'm going to throw out a number of maybe 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I joined it when uh, Bernie Fisher was the editor in chief. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't even remember my, my role at the time. You know, I, I think what spurred me on to, to join it was I had trouble reading the articles because I'd get through a paragraph and there were, it, there were so many problems with how it was written that I couldn't understand it. And the English teacher's daughter in me just could not read on after seeing that. So I think I said, let me help edit these articles. And then I just got more and more involved, um, eventually becoming the editor-in-chief. And how long have you held that role? It's been two, three years. I want to say that long. Yeah. 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 So how has the staff of the journal changed over time? I mean, not, not the personalities, but the number? Yeah, well, it, it has grown, I think. Um, 
you know, yeah, there is always some turnover in people. Um, you know, life gets in the way with a lot of people and it, priorities change and other areas where they want to work on holistic medicine changes. Um, so that part turns over. But we've, you know, early on, um, we added copy editors and now we have three. Um, well, actually four. Uh, Lauren Cook um, heads up our news section and copy edits those papers as well. Uh, but for the scientific papers, we have three copy editors. One is a professional copy editor and the other two are extremely talented veterinarians. Um, so when they're done with papers, they read really well. <laughs> um, and uh, we had two student interns and we still offer student internships, but we just haven't had the interest, unfortunately. But those interns are now key members of our editorial committee. Um, and, um, you know, we've taken on other members as well. So um, I look at it like I, I don't care how many members we have. We, we need to have as many as it takes to get all this work done. And there's more and more work as we're sort of expanding our horizons. Um, Pedro Rivera is the newest member, and he is in the process of getting us um, indexed on more medical indices. Uh, we're currently on CABI. Um, we're in the process of getting an ISBIN number. Um, and then we're off to the races, hopefully, in getting on other medical indexes, which should encourage more people to submit to our journal because the papers will be more widely read. Yeah, that's critical, right? Yes, very critical. What, do you, what are the other challenges you see as editor-in-chief? Well, getting authors are the biggest ones um, and getting authors who say yes to actually submit the papers. <laughs> um, at, you know, like for our current issue, I think we had probably eight people who said, yep, I'll submit papers. And I think we've received three. Uh, I have other papers as well. But, um, you know, my goal is to have minimum of three good, solid papers per issue, preferably four, um, sometimes five. Um, so that that's a challenge. Vets are very, very busy now. Um, and not everyone that we ask to write is actually even a vet. You know, some are researchers and in and an industry. Um, but that's the hardest part. Um, and I think some of our vets who submit, um, it's the first time. And they, they learn the review process. And we really work with them because we understand that. Um, so, you know, anybody who wants to submit a paper can, um, I'll pre-review it, um, send it back, you know, as many times as need be until it's ready, respectable enough to go to reviewers. Um, and, you know, we work with you the whole way. Um, we also have our, I, I want to try to keep the journal relevant to our readers. And we also have our new section called CAM in practice, C-A-V-M in practice, um, this is like case reports, but it's, they're not quite as rigorous, um, as long as it's really obvious to our readers that this was indeed a case of X, um, and it was indeed cured by treatment B or whatever. Um, these are more educational for our readers. 
Um, we just published our first one by Steve Marston, uh, and that's up on our samples page on the website. Uh, and we have another homeopathy one coming out in the issue under production now. So, you know, anybody who's listening to this, if you have a case that you think might fit this category and you'd like to have it published, be in touch with me. That sounds good. Hey, I, here's some, I always, I guess, just came to mind. Are there other journals like ours anywhere in the world? Not to my knowledge. You know, I don't want to rule that out, but I haven't heard of them. I hadn't um, either. You know, that are peer reviewed to this level. Yeah. So, and peer review doesn't mean two people read the article. Um, we're, our goal for every paper is to have at least one person who is either board certified or holds an advanced degree in the area, like a PhD or something like that. And that's not easy to find, I can imagine. It, it can be a challenge. Sometimes, you know, the first time I send out letters for reviewers, I get two yeses and we're off to the races. Other times it can be weeks until we get two reviewers. Um, and then, you know, there are just challenges all along the way. You know, as I said before, life gets in the way and sometimes reviews get held up and <laughs> COVID's been happening. We've had a number of people, reviewers and authors come down with COVID <laughs> in the publication process. So, um, it, yeah, there are challenges. <laughs> but as I recall, you, you and your staff do a lot of forward planning. So you're, you're thinking out, I mean, how far, how many issues out are you planned? Are you, have you planned? Right now, we've planned through the end of the year. Um, we are, um, I, I just was talking to Christy Herman, who is, um, has taken over the role of getting authors and reminding authors, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, we are going to plan on a, another committee meeting probably in February on a Sunday night. And we're going to try, uh, just to brainstorm to get more authors, um, you know, that's the biggest challenge. So, but I, w I really, we need to start booking authors into two, 2023 right now. I mean, that's a good thing for a prospective author is there's not, you know, there's a long timeline. Yeah. Everybody works differently. You know, some people say like, okay, it's on my mind. I'm going to churn out this paper now. Other people need a lot of time, which is most people. But it, for some of them, out of sight, out of mind, they forget about it or they put it off and something else comes up. So, you know, we have to plan for that, too, so that we have enough papers. And we do get a fair number of papers that are not solicited. Um, and, you know, they're varying quality. Um, some of them are excellent. Others, um, no, you know, they, they don't make it through review. Are you uh, what are your thoughts on the future of our medicine? Of our integrative medicine? Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's just going to grow, but, you know, it's a matter of how. <laughs> um, I see acupuncture taking off. Um, and, you know, again, not being an acupuncturist, I can't really comment on why I do get acupuncture for myself. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, they, they've done it right. Um, you know, some of them working with the veterinary schools with this. Um, I think, you know, the whole idea of just how it was introduced and, um, you know, learning that it, it worked in China, let's give it a try here, uh, has been helpful. Um, I think that 
as you say in your article that's coming out, um, we need to get students going through the practices, observing us. Um, we need to get more feet in the vet schools. Uh, this, these schools are swamped. I mean, obviously now is not the time to introduce foreign people <laughs> into your building during a pandemic, but um, I think just letting them know that it works. Um, I, I have given many lectures to the Student Holistic Club in its off and on existence at Penn over the years. Um, I think that's one way to, to get people interested. Um, you know, I think the best thing is our student presence through our, our chapter, our student chapter of the AHVMA. Um, you know, these are people that are already interested. And I think we really, really need to cultivate that. I agree. I think the student chapters and, and frankly, the journal. Yeah, our, our keys you. to growth. Well, Shelley, I don't want to. I don't want to keep you. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much for your friendship and what you've done for our association and what you continue to do. I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface on. I know a little bit of how the sausage is made, so to speak, and and just how much goes into the journal and you and your staff, the time and effort that you put in to make it as as great as I think it is. Thanks, Neil, and and a lot of everything you just said back at you. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. I hope to see you soon. Thanks, Neil. You too. All right. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. ZIVT provides world-leading education in natural medicine, including three accredited postgraduate qualifications, industry-recognized certifications, and a wide range of evidence-based courses and webinars delivered by qualified and experienced practitioners. By bridging cutting-edge science and tradition, CIVT helps you to expand your treatment options to tackle your most challenging cases. And whether you're a veterinarian, veterinary technician or nurse, animal health professional, or someone who wants to learn more, they have the right course for you. Investigate their offerings at civtedu.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd appreciate if you'd take the time to tell a friend and to give us a favorable rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for your support. We'll see you next time.